That's what normal mom and pop unsophisticated investors are playing. So the big question is what a top agent is doing to absolutely crush it in real estate. To get the answers, we interview the top real estate agents to learn their secrets to success. If you would like one-on-one access to over 26 of the top agents in the country to help you scale your business, then head over to eliteagentsecrets.com slash partner, or you can just click the link in the description below. My name is Andrew Dunn. And my name is Peter Michael. Welcome to Elite Agent Secrets. Hey guys, what's going on? Welcome to another episode of Elite Agent Secrets. Today, our episode is going to be vastly different than from what you're used to because I have Lane Kawaoka here with us today. Now, Lane is a licensed professional with a master's degree in civil engineering with an emphasis in construction management and a bachelor's in industrial engineering, both from the University of Washington in Seattle. He currently owns over 65 apartment buildings, two manufactured home developments, a hotel, and an assisted living facility, totaling over 10,000 units in 12 different states valued at, you ready? 2.1B with a billion annual. Now, guys, today's topics are going to be also different than what you've experienced. We've never covered them before. So strap on your seatbelts because we're going to talk about how to get started with your first property. And topic number two, we'll talk about the tax advantages and how to offset your losses and different strategies that you can implement today. And in topic number three, we're going to talk about the real estate professional status and what does that really mean? Because I know what you're thinking. Well, I'm a realtor. I'm a real estate agent. Ha, that's not the same exact thing, ladies and gentlemen. Selene, welcome to the show. How are you today? Hey, thanks for having me. Aloha, everybody. (laughs) I love that you are right now in Seattle, originally from Hawaii, and I get a little bit of aloha to begin the podcast. (laughs) So, Lane... I know today's topics are going to be different. Your background is very different than from what we're used to seeing on the show. So I want to give you the floor a little bit and let's dive into your background of how you got started investing in real estate and how does a civil engineer go from getting multiple degrees to 10,000 units because I know it didn't happen overnight either. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I kind of look at it this wealth building journey, you know, we all have ways we make money initially, right? Because part of this, especially real estate investing is it's capital intensive. If you're a broke guy, you need to get unbroke and you need to get some principal so you can invest in down payments or, you know, properties to acquire rental properties. My way was, you know, just kind of the way I think a lot of people out there, you know, you go to school, you study hard, you get a good job. That's what I did, you know, like graduated in 2007 out here in Seattle. Um, funny, I found my way back this week here, but uh, I just started working for the man, right? And, you know, just quickly realized I didn't really like it. But hey, you know, I was making a professional, you know, six figure salary and I was pretty frugal with my money, right? Um, that was kind of my, one of my advantages. I was able to save 30, 40, 50 grand a year. Uh, when I was starting out and, you know, quickly bought a house to live in. And, but because I was like in my early twenties and I had this big house to myself and was never home because I was working on the road as a construction engineer and I just decided to rent it out. And that was kind of where I got like the taste of cash flow. I was like, wow, like 
tenants paying down my mortgage, um, getting like a few hundred bucks of cash flow every month. And to a young 20 year old kid, 20, I think it was like 23 or 24. That was a lot of beer money at the time. And, but you know, a few months after I kind of realized, wow, if I just kept doing this several more times, I'd be able to somewhat replace my income or, or that light would be at the end of the tunnel. Sure. That would be a lot of rental properties, but I saw the path forward to get out of, you know, quote unquote, the rat race and to replace my ordinary income, um, trading time for money, which I quite honestly didn't like. And, and that was kind of the start of this, this all. See, I, I like that because you very early understood the same thing that I did as well, where I didn't want to sign up for the 40-40-40 plan, aka 40 hours a week for the next 40 years of my life just to retire on 40% of my salary. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm an immigrant. So for me coming into this country, it was like school was the thing to do. After school, get a great job. And then start climbing up the corporate ladder. And I've always been psychologically unemployable and looking for different ways to either add income, diversify my income, or simply create more passive income. And real estate was one of those things where I found myself spending more and more time on like Friday nights, looking at Zillow, looking at properties, looking at analyzing them, looking at potential cash flow, how much money it would take to actually acquire my first property. So the realization that you had, um, I love what you said there. I was frugal. I think you were just playing a chess game. Maybe it wasn't defined as a chess game just yet, but saving $30,000, dollars $50,000 a year, that's first of all, very impressive because most people aren't even making that much a year, especially when they're first starting out, yet alone you know, Uber Eats and Friday nights and Saturday nights catch up to them where they're just simply not an option. So as you started, you know, venturing on your path to first acquire your first piece of property, talk to us about what that journey looked like, because now having over 10,000 doors, 10,000 units, I'm assuming at some point, you know, in the beginning, it was maybe multi-units. Then I think that game probably evolved. And then you started buying bigger and bigger units in order to scale as quickly as you have, knowing what you know now. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, let's walk to the genesis because there were a couple of big, big pivot points there. Like I said, the first property I bought was certainly to live in, um, and and we can Did kind of go hack? into. Um, no, I didn't. I, 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 that's not my style, man. I'm not gonna have another guy living in the house, a person living in a house with me. I, the, I, the reason I, I, I ask is that. that's what I did too. <laughs> I, I bought my first property as a primary residence, and that was the easiest one. My wife, at that time, my girlfriend, aka my fiance, we moved in. We got married afterwards, and then it was just like a domino effect. You you catch yeah. the real estate. I I probably could have, you know, because I was single back then. But yeah, you know, like. I don't know for guys in their thirties and forties, I don't know, no bueno for me, but <laughs> you know, like back then I didn't know like what made a good rental property. I didn't really understand the numbers for one. This property was an A-class rental in Seattle, Washington. So higher rents. Therefore, if people understand the dynamic of rent to value ratios, as you start to go on the high end, the luxury side, you don't get the rent to value ratios necessary to cash flow and they're much worse. So, but I didn't know any better and I, I, I got lucky, right? We bought at the right time. This is back in 2009 when I purchased that first property, 
Um, the numbers were like 22, I think the rents were like 2,200, the mortgage was 1,600. And, you know, obviously that doesn't meet the 50% rule, right? Where you assume that 50% of the rents is going to go to expenses via taxes, insurance, maintenance. And then you have to put a bunch of money, maybe 10% at least to kind of a rating day fund to pay for big CapEx items that definitely do come up, especially after the first several years of ownership. But I didn't know any of this, right? I just thought like, hey, I was delta between the, the the mortgage and the rents. I'm making money, right? Um, but as I, like I said, as I became more and more, you know, ingrained in this stuff and listened to podcasts and books, I started to get more and more interested and I started to understand the nuances of all right, the next property I go and buy, you know, it shouldn't be in a super nice place, super cool property. Like I, you know, first, the first one was, so the second property was more of a B type of duplex. It was kind of built in the 1980s. If I recall, it got slightly better rent to value ratio on that one. So that was my next couple of units. Um, at that point was around 2012, 2013. And the prices in Seattle were just skyrocketing at that point, as it was mostly across the country. So I started to, you know, realize like, wow, like for investors looking for cash flow, which I was, so I could replace my day job, I needed to go to different markets because Seattle, you know, California, New York, Miami, these sexy primary markets. You're just not going to see the rent to value ratios out there. It's going to be a little bit more skewed towards appreciation, which is a different way of playing this whole game. You know, I'm more on the cash flow side and then sell at the right time in the market cycle. So I started to look, and I'm sure people are aware, like turnkey rentals are out there. There's a lot of providers, marketers of these, these types of assets. What it basically is, is like, you know, you have a house flipper and they'll rehab the, the unit for you. So new flooring, new appliances, new paint job. And they'll typically, you know, make it worth more of the this sturdy tenant grade materials to make it tenant grade. And then some of these guys will even put a tenant in there for you. So it's truly turnkey. So that was kind of the next step to get out of the primary market of Seattle. Hey, I just wanted to jump in here and let you know, if you would like access to over 26 of the top agents in the country to help you scale your business, then head over to EliteAgentSecrets.com slash partner, or you can just click the link in the description below. Now back to the show. I like what you're you're talking about here. I want to kind of take a little bit of a step back, merge the gap between some of our seasoned veterans and some of our newer listeners. You're talking about rent-to-value ratios. You're talking about CapEx. You're a seasoned investor, right? Talk to us a little bit about what is it that you're looking for when it comes to the property? What does rent-to-value ratio really mean? What are some of the CapEx things, capital expenditures that you will need when it comes to um, you know, maybe budgeting for your property before we get into how to acquire your first one? Yeah, sure. So, so rent-to-value, I think, is like the quick and dirty first step you need to do to kind of run the numbers a bit. So you basically take the monthly rent divided by the purchase price. So normally we're looking for something 1% or higher as a real general rule. Um, Obviously prices have gone up and rents have kind of stayed, you know, stagnant a little bit. So making that even harder today. But, you know, back then that first rental property I bought, you know, to live in, which wasn't a great rental, 
was I think I believe you know twenty two hundred a month rents divided by three hundred fifty thousand dollars was the purchase price. Obviously, you know that is under that one percent threshold, which is very common in the West Coast primary markets. I was going to say that's my Northeast rental right now in Philly. It's like a point seven, give or take. That was my very first property, and it's still at yeah, 0.7. yeah. My, I mean, mine was worse, right? And but you improve from there. Um, the only way you're going to do that is go to a little bit, you know, less sexy market, more secondary or tertiary markets. So like some of the markets we'll invest in today, like Phoenix, Houston, Dallas, um, Huntsville, Alabama is, a, is an example of a tertiary market, um, maybe closer to where you're at, Jacksonville, Florida. You know, we've, we've got a property out there. Um, you know, these are the less sexy markets that you're going to find better rent to value ratios. And the reason why you want the rent to value ratio high is just in case something happens in the economy, right? It goes up and down in market cycles. Right now, it's it's kind of the down period right now, which is exactly the reason now is the time to get in. But you know, you can ride out the waves, right? Because like in any business, as long as you stay in business or you you keep you have oxygen to breathe, you'll make it to the other side of the market cycle, and real estate will come back. And, and I mean, it's real estate. Um, I think that's why a lot of us got into it in the first place because it provides a utility value, especially when you focus in on more of the workforce type of housing that we do, you know, more of the B class type of tenant. Um, but, you know, going back to rent to value ratio, right? So a lot of places that, you know, like turnkey rentals that I was kind of starting out with, we would buy like, you know, like $70,000 properties that today you would buy for a hundred grand. But they would rent for eight hundred bucks back then, so eight hundred divided by seventy would be slightly over that one percent rent to value ratio threshold. Um, now that's kind of like I said, that's the quick and dirty way of doing it. The set, step two is, you know, once you kind of get, you know, you like a property, now is more to do the the more in depth analysis, and it's not that hard. Um, you know, we, we have a free spreadsheet on our website that, you know, if people want to go and download, they, they more than can. I think it's at simplepassivecashflow.com slash analyzer. But you basically, you know, you put in your rents, which is your top line income. And then you you kind of fill in. I mean, there's presets in there for all the expenses. So taxes, insurance, um, your debt service, your um, every month, you know, things will break. You know, some months they won't, but, you know, things will catch up with you, of course. You're going to have vacancy, you know, in there. You're going to have sometimes the tenants mess things up, um, and then like like you um, asked before, the capex, right? What is capex? So capex are the big ticket items that don't break all the time, you know. So think of like the roof that you may have to replace every twenty years, or the the flooring, um, or the driveway may have to re slurry seal that thing, um, or like a new washer dryer, refrigerator water heater. These are the big ticket items. Um, I think in, the, in our analyzer, we have kind of one of those like, hey, here are all the, these different CapEx components and here's kind of the average life. And of course, maybe I think I made this at one time because I was born at work and, you know, spreadsheet junkie being an engineer. I did that whole calculation where you take the average length and you did the life cycle cost analysis. It basically comes out to about a hundred, couple hundred bucks a year for all these big ticket items that you have to kind of yeah. escrow personally to be able to have it. If not, you know, if you're running your property at, 
you know, without this, which I think most investors do, most investors are unaware of, you know, this type of analysis that they just get blindsided. They get five, 10 years down the road and they're like, well, shoot, like I thought, why are we making money with this thing? You know, it's like, well, you didn't account for the CapEx, which might be a hundred, couple hundred bucks a month. You, you may go for three, four, five years without paying any of that, but eventually it's going to catch up to you. you know? Yeah, it's, it's all... It's all, it comes in cycles, right? And I, I like what you said also is that you make your money by buying the property correctly and then selling and getting rid of it at the particular specific time where you're able to move into another property. The other thing that I like what you said also, and I want to dive into this a little bit before we move into topic two is, you know, some people write the appreciation game and the equity game, but you're talking about cash flow. Why? this approach versus the appreciation game? Well, I think, you know, the appreciation game is kind of relies on luck, right? I agree. It's a gambling almost, right? It, it is. I mean, it's, it's a good gamble. I would argue, you know, I would, I would. If you're holding long-term, yes, but not if you're trying to be in and out or you're trying to quote unquote arbitrage a certain time and time the market. Right. I would, I would concede that. However, I mean, why not get the best of both worlds and where yes. you're cash flowing along the way? And it comes down to goals, right? Like at that time, I was just trying to leave my day job. And what I needed was cash flow to do that, to replace my income. Um, you know, if you're a realtor out there, look, same thing. It, you know, I have a lot of high paid, high income um, W-2 earners. It makes no difference if, whether you supposedly own your own business or your real estate agent or your high paid doctor, y'all just trading time for money. If you stop working, you're going to have, you're, you're not going to have that money coming in. The tricky exactly. part and the difficult part for anybody is kind of taking money off the table and not spending it and enjoying it, but putting it and playing kind of like the parlay game in, in Vegas where you take one bet and you throw the winnings into the other right, is to kind of play that game and delay gratify and putting it into rental properties or syndication deals where you get that cash flow stream for perceivably forever after that. It's not going to be meaningful because the cash flow streams are going to be a lot smaller. But the whole idea of creating a different mini pension streams for yourself over time, I mean, I think everybody understands this general concept, right? It exponentially grows from there. But exactly. it's that it's the it's hard, right? Because we're all like working hard, operating what we're doing. However, like you, and especially if you're taking that money and doing marketing, right? Like we do the same thing. When do we take the money and stop growing our business and actually put it to growing our balance sheet, right? And this is the concept. You know, I work with a lot of entrepreneurs. It's a lot of people more income sheet driven, which is like what's happening today, what's happening yes. on an annual basis, but sophisticated higher net worth investors are always more balance sheet driven right they, they're thinking what's happening on a year to year or five year 10 year runway and what is coming in not from their ordinary income but their passive income side and we'll get into the taxes more because that's a big aha moment i think when people understand the differences between taxes the way your tax on your ordinary and your passive income side yeah, I, I think that's a very valid point. So as we wrap up on how to get started with your first property, first, you have to identify it. Then you have to do rent evaluation on it. We can use, you know, 
some kind of budgeting and use your sheet on simplified cash flow, right? Dot com forward slash uh, simple. Yeah, simple passive cash flow dot com. Um, I, I also wanted to mention on, you know, why not do the appreciation game, right? To sure. me, like there's a concept that I call crowdiness. When everybody and their mother is doing something kind of like short term rentals right now, right? Like it's kind of like an amateur game. I think you need to kind of understand that amateurs are doing it and you need to get away from where the crowds are. This is why we eventually moved off to larger apartments and now develop. But when you're playing the appreciation game, that's what normal mom and pop unsophisticated investors are playing. And they're buying in these sexy places to live in. Heck, they're, they're, a lot of times they're buying in their college town because they're familiar with it. You know, you got to get away from the amateur investors because they're ultimately pumping up the price on you. So, you know, as you've heard, like the price is made or the profit is made on the purchase. If you're around a bunch of amateur investors buying properties in California, Seattle, you know, it's just you have to understand you have to get away from that crowdiness. And most of these guys are, you know, and it makes sense, right? We Like we said in the, in earlier, buy low, sell high. It makes a lot of sense. And that's what everybody does. But if you can kind of find a way to always just be moving away from what the average person with the amateur is doing, you'll find, you'll find that you're going to, you know, you know, beat this law of crowdiness and you'll have probably better results. But in this case, you have the added, added benefit of going to less sexy locations, but you also have cash flow. I think that's a big that's a big key, right? When everybody is running in one direction, it's already too late. Yeah, I mean, I know I know you do some pretty advanced stuff with on the realtor side and and marketing, but like, what does every real estate agent, what does every newbie do, right? Of course, they go to their friends and family, right? But they they'll pay like a big website like Zillow or or whoever for paid leads, dude. Everybody does that. You, you guys all know that doesn't work, right? same concept exactly exactly thanks for listening to this episode if you would like one-on-one access to over 26 of the top agents in the country to help you scale your business then head over to eliteagentsecrets.com partner or you can just click the link in the description below 